Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, May 17, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historian Craig L. Simons delves into the history of naval warfare during the Second World War. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for coming out on this beautiful New York twilight afternoon uh, to talk about the Second World War. I'm going to start by telling you something you already know about the Second World War, and that is that it was the most gruesome, traumatic, world-transforming event in all of human history. It literally changed the world. And for many Americans of my generation, of our generation, I suspect, um, it became kind of the template of war. It was what we assumed wars were like. They began at a very specific moment with an earth-shaking event. The enemy was absolutely evil. Everyone pulled on the same rope, and it led out to what Franklin Roosevelt famously called unconditional surrender. But, in fact, most wars are not like that. Uh, I think that among wars generally, the Second World War is very nearly unique Uh, in all of those characteristics, and because the wars since then have not played out in exactly that way, because they've been uh, more frustrating and more nuanced, they've lacked the clarity, they lack the decisiveness of the Second World War. It's led to frustration and public unrest. Tonight I'm going to talk about the naval side of that war, uh, which was quite literally a global conflict, And trying to cover all of it in a single book or even a single lecture uh, is a little bit daunting and, in fact, terrifying. But that said, I'll give it my best shot, and no doubt we can get uh, more into the weeds during the question and answer period. So I'd encourage everyone to think about questions you might want to ask afterward and fill out the cards that are going to be available. But let me tell you a story first. Last week, uh, my wife and I were in Washington, D.C., where I gave a talk at the Treasury Institute. Apparently, the Treasury Institute, a very secure building in the middle of Washington, D.C., has periodic events where they invite someone in uh, to uh, talk about an historical event and distribute books to the membership, and then we have a conversation. Uh, So when we got to the building, we had to pass through the usual metal detectors. I was searched and patted down. It was very secure. But once I was inside... I learned that they had been compelled to ask for two sets of books to be sent because the first set never quite made it into the hands of those who were attending. And the reason is because the labels on the outside of the boxes had not been encoded with a specific piece of information needed to get through all those layers of security. So here these large cardboard boxes arrived at the Treasury Institute one day without any specific authorization, and it led someone in authority to decide that they needed to be carted off to a secure site, surrounded by C4, and exploded. (laughs) 
Now, I've had bad reviews before, (laughs) but never one quite like that. Hopefully, we'll have no similar experience this evening. For Americans, the Second World War began at a very specific moment, and they could all remember where they were at that time, just as most of us remember where we were on 9-11. December 7, 1941. But for the British, the French, the Germans, and especially for the Polish, it began two years earlier on September 1st, 1939. And for the Japanese and the Chinese, it began two years before that on July 7th, 1937. And in my book, I try to honor all of these participants. My goal, after all, was to write about World War II at sea, all of it, including those theaters Americans often pay less attention to it to than perhaps they ought. The Indian Ocean, the Barents Sea, and in fact, until 1943 at least, the Mediterranean. Now, the most famous book about this war at sea is this one. And rightly so. In 1941, Samuel Eliot Morrison was a, already a well-known Harvard history professor with a half dozen good books under him, uh, including a wonderful biography of Christopher Columbus, still in print. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, he went to Franklin Roosevelt and asked for a commission as a naval officer so he could go to sea with the Navy and record those events in real time. And he stayed with that project throughout the war and retired in the 1950s as a rear admiral, thus becoming both Professor Morrison and Admiral Morrison. He saw a lot of action. He was on board the cruiser Brooklyn during the invasion of North Africa and on aircraft carriers in many of the battles of the Pacific. He was a witness to the landings on Okinawa, He also had scores of other officers serving elsewhere in the Navy uh, who reported to him. And the result was a 15-volume history of the United States Navy in World War II at sea, which he supervised as a kind of general editor, much of which he wrote personally. Because there were some readers who, for one reason or another, were daunted by undertaking a 15-volume history of World War II at sea, he also wrote a one-volume version, which is the one I'm showing you here. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm here to flog my book, not Morrison's. And let me explain how mine is different. Note the title of Morrison's book. He says it was a two-ocean war. That is to say it took place in the Atlantic, where a lot of the combat was characterized by U-boat attacks on Allied convoys carrying Lend-Lease goods and war material from the United States and Canada to Great Britain, and one in the Pacific, characterized by those large-scale carrier battles and the island-hopping campaign from Guadalcanal to Okinawa. It's an excellent account of the role of the U.S. Navy in those two oceans, But a total of 72 nations took part in the Second World War, some involuntarily. And a dozen of them had major navies that played a significant role in determining the trajectory and indeed the outcome of that conflict. Not only that, but the naval war was fought not in two oceans, but at least six, as well as several seas, including the Mediterranean and the Caribbean, which explains the subtitle of my book. Here we go. This is the one you want. (laughs) 
Because in addition to extensive coverage of the U.S. Navy, I also deal with these theaters of war, theaters where American naval vessels did not participate in the outcome. As FDR told Americans in the first of his fireside chats, the oceans of the world were one gigantic battlefield. Of course, most of the book turns out to be about the U.S. Navy. After all, it was by far the largest and the most powerful, especially by 1944. But I also discuss the British, the Germans, the Italians, the French, the Poles, the Russians, the Australians, even the Norwegians, as well as the Americans and the Japanese. Each of these navies played a role, often an important role, in that conflict. I also explore a bit about the culture and the strategy of those other powers in an effort to illuminate their motives and their objectives. And all of these navies mattered because they affected the overall global competition for resources, and especially shipping. When national leaders had to construct a strategy, they had to take the entire globe into consideration because committing resources to one theater necessarily meant not committing them somewhere else. The butterfly effect, right? You've all heard of this. I assume that a butterfly somewhere in the world flapping its wings has a a minute change on the environment that could spawn a typhoon in another part of the world. I'm a little skeptical of the literal truth of that. I think it's supposed to be a metaphor But it is indisputable that committing ships to an operation in one part of the globe meant that there were exactly that many fewer ships for an operation elsewhere. The naval war between 1939 and 1945, and especially after the U.S. entered the war in December 1941, illustrates this phenomenon. In 1942, there were demands for Allied resources everywhere. And all at once, in the Atlantic to fight the U-boats, in the Pacific to slow down the Japanese, in the Arctic to bring supplies around the North Cape of Norway into the Barents Sea to supply the Red Army, still carrying the bulk of the ground war against the Wehrmacht. And of course, in the Mediterranean, where the British were desperately trying to keep open the supply line between Gibraltar and Suez. And even in the Indian Ocean, where the same Japanese carrier strike force that hit at Pearl Harbor also attacked the Royal Navy in Ceylon and India. All those flapping butterfly wings meant that strategic decision makers could not pursue a single line of approach. They had to parcel out their scarce resources here and there, hoping that the world did not collapse on them entirely. Now, the Allies did try to address these conflicts one at a time. No one wants to have to fight a two-front or a five-front war if they can possibly avoid it. This is Admiral Harold Stark, who was the United States Chief of Naval Operations when the war began, who was universally known as Betty. He came by that nickname, by the way, when he was a plebe at the Naval Academy. Uh, In those days, somewhat less so now, the upperclassmen took it upon themselves to endow every new plebe with a nickname, which often stayed with them not only through our four years at the academy, but often through their entire career as a naval officer. When I worked as a flag lieutenant for a vice admiral back in the early 1970s uh, in uniform, 
I used to draft letters and speeches and articles for my boss. And when I wrote a letter to a fellow flag officer, I would dutifully uh, use the salutation, Dear Admiral Jones, or whatever. And I would take it in for him to sign, and he'd look through it. But he'd cross off the salutation and write in, Dear Stinky. Because he remembered him from the academy. I often wondered how Stinky got his nickname. But we do know how Betty got his. He was standing in line one day at the Naval Academy, stiffly at attention, when an upperclassman noticed his name tag. Stark, he said. Are you related to General John Stark? To which midshipman fourth class Stark replied, Sir, I do not know who General Stark is, sir. Well, that was not the right answer. Uh, So the upperclassmen informed him that General John Stark was an American hero during the Revolution who, before the Battle of Bennington, had announced to his soldiers, we will win today or Betty Stark will be a widow, and ordered Midshipman Stark to shout out that phrase every time he encountered an upperclassman for the rest of the year, which he did, so that almost immediately and forever after, He was known as Betty Stark. Here, for example, is a letter from the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall, to the American Chief of Naval Operations. Note the salutation. Now, the punchline to this story is that the upperclassman had his history wrong because General Stark's wife was actually named Molly. So, be that as it may, Admiral Stark took over as Chief of Naval Operations on August 1st, 1939. Note the date. It's exactly one month before Germany crossed the Polish border to inaugurate World War II in Europe. Stark's principal contribution to Allied victory, many would argue, was a memo that he wrote in November of 1940. After France had capitulated, the British were driven off the beaches at Dunkirk. It was, as a recent film suggests, the darkest hour For the Allies, it looked very much like the Germans were going to win this war, and the U.S. would be isolated in the Western Hemisphere. And given those circumstances, Stark wrote a memo for the president in which he laid out the four options, as he saw them, for an American grand strategy. We could, he said, defend the Western Hemisphere. We could be essentially isolationist, protect our borders, the oceans as a moat. We could instead focus on a possible war with Japan. This, after all, had been at the heart of American strategic planning and particularly naval planning since 1911. We could try to fight in two oceans at the same time. But, of course, nobody really wants to have to fight a two-front war if they can avoid it. Or we could reverse 20 years of strategic planning and concentrate on the defeat of Germany first. And that fourth option, option D, plan dog, as it was known in Navy lingo, is the one he recommended to Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt bought it. Roosevelt believed, not only because uh, of his love for the Navy, but because of his concern for American security, that Germany was by far the more serious of all of America's potential foes in this conflict. It had a GDP six times that of Japan and a GDP larger than those of France and Britain combined. 
In Roosevelt's mind, it was essential to American national interests as well as British survival to concentrate on the defeat of Hitler and Germany first. Most historians have followed that logic and described the war, explained the war, uh, as two separate, though obviously connected, conflicts. A war in the Atlantic against Germany and the U-boats, followed by a war in the Pacific against Japan and its carriers. A two-ocean war. But that is not the way it was fought. When American and British admirals and generals met, as they did frequently throughout the war, to discuss grand strategy and determine what their next move would be against the Axis, they paid lip service to this idea of defeating Germany first. But the pressures were simultaneous and immediate. In 1942, as I suggested earlier, the Anglo-Americans were like, like a child in the shadow of a giant dam that was breaking in 12 places at once and trying to shore up the leaks, as best they could, and making grand strategy to do this particular thing or that particular thing down the road had to take second place to immediate needs. So in addition to being a war that was fought by a dozen navies in six oceans, it was also a war that took place everywhere all at once. And let me try to demonstrate to you by citing a very specific example or two. In August of 1942, still less than a year into American participation in the war, a single reinforced U.S. Marine division splashed ashore on Guadalcanal Island in the Solomon Island chain in the southern Pacific, there at the Blue Arrow, at the very outer periphery of this area of conquest seized by Japan in the first six months of the war. Now, this move in itself, of course, is a violation of the Germany first principle. There are no Germans on Guadalcanal. But Ernest J. King, who by now had replaced Betty Stark as the American chief of naval operations, argued that, you see, this isn't really an offensive move. What had happened is that Australian coast watchers had reported that the Japanese were building an airstrip on Guadalcanal, and should that airstrip be finished, when that airstrip was finished, it would allow the Japanese to dominate the line of communications between Australia and Hawaii, so that for defensive reasons, the Navy Marine Corps team had to seize Guadalcanal and take charge of that airstrip themselves. Now, this is not entirely a bogus argument, but King knew full well that it would also be the camel's nose under the tent, that once you put one division ashore halfway around the world, it would have to be supported and supplied and reinforced. It would draw more equipment and men and materiel like a black hole into Guadalcanal, and that is exactly what did happen. The Guadalcanal campaign lasted nearly eight months. There was another complication. To return to the map for just a minute, you can see here that the Pacific Theater is divided, that blue line, into two different command areas. Now, the reason for doing this was only partly for strategic reasons. The Pacific Ocean is a large area. Making it a single command is a little problematic. But it was also for political reasons. FDR knew and understood well he had to give an important command to General Douglas MacArthur. But MacArthur was, well, MacArthur. (laughs) 
and a problematic personality in his own right. The president did not want to give him command of the entire Pacific, did not want, in particular, to give him command of the United States Navy. So what he did, as King Solomon did, was cut the baby in half. MacArthur got command of what was known as the Southwest Pacific, or Southwest Pack, there at the lower left, which, as you can see, included the continent of Australia, the Dutch East Indies, including the Big Islands in New Guinea, Borneo, and Sumatra, and, of course, the Philippine Islands, which, as far as MacArthur was concerned, was the main point of this whole campaign anyway. The rest, the Pacific Ocean area, all that expanse of blue, that was put under the command of Admiral Chester Nimitz, who was on the right here in this staged photograph. Now, this, too, is a violation of a strategic principle. Don't divide your forces, particularly in the face of an enemy. MacArthur complained about this constantly to George Marshall, his boss in the Army, the American Chief of Staff, and to FDR personally. He even speculated among his staff that FDR had done this, had relegated him to a secondary command theater because he knew that if MacArthur were unleashed, he would win the war in the Pacific and come home a hero and replace FDR in the White House, which is a scenario that that, uh, MacArthur seems to have thought about rather seriously. But the decision stood, and when the Marines went ashore on Guadalcanal to begin that lengthy campaign in the tropical jungle of that island, the United States confronted not only a two-ocean war, in the Atlantic and the Pacific, but now in the Pacific, a two-front war, so that, in effect, we're fighting three wars at the same time. The American landing on Guadalcanal was officially known as Operation Watchtower, but so scarce were Allied resources in August of 1942 and for the ensuing several months that virtually everyone called it Operation Shoestring, just barely getting by. And in fact, it nearly fell apart the very first day. On the evening of August 8th, a Japanese surface naval force came down from Rabaul, where they had their headquarters in the southern Pacific, through what was called the slot in between those twin arms of the Solomon Islands archipelago to attack Allied U.S. and Australian ships off the landing beach at Guadalcanal. They particularly attacked the covering force, the American and Australian cruisers. The result was the most lopsided American naval defeat in history, absent Pearl Harbor. Four Allied cruisers went to the bottom, lost entirely with most of their crews, and the Japanese got away completely unscathed. It led to a lot of hand-wringing and finger-pointing in Washington. But it could have been worse. After their victory, had the Japanese task force continued on to the landing beach to sink the American transports, American shipping off the landing beach, that would not only have undercut the American operations in the Solomon Islands, Guadalcanal in particular, it would have undercut entire American strategy in the Pacific and indeed worldwide. Remember those butterfly wings flapping. The 18 transport ships off Guadalcanal and Tulagi represented virtually all that the Americans had been able to scrape together to support this campaign. The loss of those would have abandoned 
uh, would stranding the Marines on Guadalcanal and made further operations in the Pacific all but impossible. Now, with those butterfly wings flapping away in the Pacific, let me zoom literally halfway around the world to another island, this one in the Mediterranean. Far less known to Americans than Guadalcanal, Malta was nevertheless a crucial British outpost smack in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Its location made it essential to the British Their sea lines of communication, as I mentioned earlier, from Gibraltar to Suez across the Mediterranean that connected them with India, the jewel of the empire. And it also served as an impediment to north-south communication by the Axis, the Germans and the Italians, with North Africa. Its airfield provided cover for the British convoys and a threat to Axis convoys because its ancient harbor at Valletta on Malta Island sat quite literally on the flank of the Axis sea lines. So naturally, the Germans sought to take it out, to eliminate this thorn to their sea lines of communication. They considered it um, important enough to launch a full-scale paratroop invasion. But they had had bad luck with paratroop invasions on the island of Crete, and so instead decided to focus on destroying it by aerial bombardment. Here is a rather stunning statistic. More bombs were dropped on that tiny island of Malta in the single month of April 1942 than were dropped on London in the entirety of the Blitz. By July, the island was in extremis. Food ration was down to six ounces per person per week. The Spitfires were so low on gas, the defenders were loath to send them up against the bombers for fear that they would not be able to get back. The island's governor notified London that if a convoy didn't get through in the next week, Malta would have to surrender. So, uh, the British put together a convoy in Glasgow. Fourteen of those scarce and invaluable transports, plus one oil tanker filled with aviation gas, the oil tanker Ohio. I can make an argument, I guess I am making an argument, that the Ohio in August of 1942 was the single most important ship on the planet. If it failed to get through with that cargo to Malta, the Spitfires would be grounded Malta would surrender, the Axis would control the Mediterranean, and the entire course of the Second World War would have changed. So, this convoy, dubbed Operation Pedestal, set out in the first week of August. Now, again, I mentioned that date for a specific reason. Remember, this is the same week the Marines are going ashore on Guadalcanal. So here's a manifestation of that global conflict. This convoy, the pedestal convoy, had the largest escort force ever created for a convoy in the war. It consisted of two aircraft carriers, excuse me, two battleships, four aircraft carriers, seven cruisers, and no fewer than 32 destroyers, all for 14 transports and a tanker. 
The escort force for Operation Pedestal was bigger than the combatant force on either side during the Battle of Midway that June in the Pacific. It's a measure not only of the importance of Malta to Allied and particularly British strategic planning, but also to the importance of transport shipping in 1942. Well, this convoy entered the Mediterranean on August 10th, and over the next six days steamed eastward toward Malta, and it was attacked every one of those six days. Aircraft from Sardinia, surface ships from Italy, German U-boats. The escort force lost two carriers, four cruisers, several destroyers, and nine of the 14 transports. It was a massacre. A worse massacre, in fact, than the destruction of the Allied fleet off Guadalcanal three days earlier. But four of the transports, and critically, the tanker Ohio, remained afloat, barely. The Ohio was bombed repeatedly and torpedoed as well, and rather remarkably, there is a photograph of the exact moment that the torpedo hit her. In addition to that, several near misses by German bombs buckled her hull plates, and one bomber shot down by British anti-air fire actually crashed into the Ohio and stayed there, its component parts sort of hanging from her superstructure like some obscene Christmas tree ornament. Not long after that, another bomb penetrated the Ohio's deck and exploded in her engine room. Without power, low in the water, the Ohio appeared doomed. To keep her afloat, two British destroyers came alongside, lashed themselves to port and starboard, and nudged her ahead through the water like water wings. More bombers came. One bomb hit her amidships and broke her back. But the destroyers kept her afloat and moving toward Malta at about three knots. And in that condition, with her decks awash, her back broken, no engine, no steering, no compass, pieces of a German bomber hanging in her superstructure, she stayed afloat just long enough to make it into Valletta Harbor, where cheering crowds lined the waterfront and brass bands played Rule Britannia. Malta remained in British hands for the rest of the war. Now, my point in telling you that story is not just that it's a pretty good story, one that relatively few Americans even know about, but also to illustrate in a particularly dramatic way that the naval war did not proceed separately in the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Mediterranean and the Caribbean and the Arctic, but everywhere and all at once, and also illustrates how precarious the state of Allied shipping was in that daunting year of 1942. The 18 transports at Guadalcanal, the 14 transports on Operation Pedestal, formed a pool of sea transports so limited it restricted what the Allies could do. Now that problem would go away gradually over time, mainly because of American shipbuilding capability. And this is most evident in the Battle of the Atlantic, that three-year war between Allied convoys and German U-boats. You can see in this chart how the number of ships built by the United States, represented by the columns in red, grew exponentially during 1943 and 1944, 
while the number of ships sunk by German U-boats in black declined over those same years. Some of that success against U-boats was due to new technology, the forward-throwing hedgehog, a more efficient radar, air coverage on Jeep carriers, more and better escorts. But a lot of it is the result of the fact that the Americans, in particular, could build ships faster than the Germans could sink them. Here's a particularly dramatic illustration of that. This is a slide of a building way at the Bethlehem Fairfield Shipyard in Baltimore in April of 1943, just as that trajectory of shipbuilding begins to skyrocket upward. The men are setting up wooden framing for the keel of a new transport ship known universally then and since as Liberty Ships. I want you to note in particular the headgear. I don't know what OSHA would say about wearing fedoras instead of hard hats, but this was 1942, and we're not worried about such niceties as that. Well, here are some other images of this same ship taken over time. Here's one from day two. That's a lot of progress in one day. Day six. Day 10. Day 14. Day 24. Ready for launch. And there she goes. The very next day, frames would be set up in that same building way for another Liberty ship. And this took place at hundreds of of building ways in scores of shipyards on both coasts, 24 hours a day in three shifts. In December of 1942, still 1942, the production of new shipping in the United States alone surpassed a million tons in a single month. And it went up from there. After that, no matter how many ships the German U-boats sank, they could never catch up with American production. Now, what this infusion of maritime assets, the Allies could now seize the initiative in 1943. And they never let it go. Here's another example of how the Second World War at sea was a global confrontation. Just as most of you have heard of Guadalcanal, All of you have heard of D-Day, the Allied landings in Normandy in June of 1944. I suspect the newest generation is mostly aware of them, thanks to Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. The naval armada that carried Tom Hanks, John Miller in the movie, and his men to the beach provided naval gunfire support, uh, but most importantly provided the transportation to get them across the channel keep them supplied, keep them reinforced to bring in the food, the water, the ammunition to take off the POWs and the wounded back across the channel in a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week cycling. The fleet was unprecedented in size. Uh, Counting armed landing craft, more than 6,000 ships participated in the D-Day landings, and it had to carry on for months The invasion of Nazi-occupied Europe did not consist of a single rush shoreward from ships offshore so that it was over by nightfall. It took place in a series of landings, 15, 20 minutes apart, all day on the 6th of June, and the 7th, and the 8th, and the 9th, and into July, and into August. And almost all of those men and all of their supplies and equipment had to come by sea. 
The most important ship in carrying out this activity was something called the landing ship tank. Again, not a very glamorous vessel, not a carrier, not a battleship, not even a cruiser. LST. The sailors who served on these ships claimed that LST actually stood for large, slow target. (laughs) They're not entirely wrong. They were large, 309 feet. They're pretty good-sized vessels. Uh, Their commodious tank deck could actually carry uh, 20-ton Sherman tanks or 30 two-and-a-half-ton fully loaded trucks, the famous deuce-and-a-half as the veterans called them in the Second World War, plus another 30 or 40 jeeps and artillery pieces on the weather deck. And the really useful thing about the LST is that they had been designed to carry this to a contested shore uh, in such a way that they could pull right up onto the beach, open up bow doors. You can actually see in this earlier shot the, the seams of the bow doors there just forward of the anchor, so that when it pulled up onto the beach, the tanks could roll out right onto the sand. Uh, So they were large. They were also slow. They had a maximum speed of 10 knots, and quite frankly, almost never made it to 10 knots. Single digits would be far more typical. And, of course, they were targets, because they are the essential ingredient in virtually every Allied landing from 1943 to the end of the war. Given that World War II was essentially a war contested by armor, it's almost impossible to see how the Allies could have carried off any invasion without LSTs to bring the armor ashore. The problem was the Allies simply didn't have enough of them. And there are several reasons for this. First, although American industrial productivity was unprecedented and awesome, as I suggested in that series of slides in the construction of a liberty ship, it was not infinite, and priorities had to be set. In setting those priorities, the Allies had to privilege the most immediate need. Remember standing in the shadow of that dam, breaking it a dozen places. Uh, In 1943, 1942 and 1943, The highest priority was for those supply ships and for the escorts that could get them safely across the ocean without being torpedoed and sunk by U-boats. But by 1943, it became evident that the LST had to be moved up and became the number one priority in construction. But shifting a shipyard from building transports and escorts over to building LSTs is not a matter of throwing a switch. 30,000 different component parts went into the construction of an LST, and they had to be brought by rail from uh, distribution sites all across the country, and the shipyard itself had to be converted into a new style. So by 1944, it was evident to Eisenhower, the supreme allied commander of the planned landing in Normandy, that he simply did not have enough LSTs to do the job. Ike wrote to his boss, uh, George C. Marshall, in Washington, that he needed 271 more landing craft than he had, and in particular, 47 of the scarce and essential LSTs. Without them, he wrote to Marshall, and I'm quoting him here, we will have no, repeat, no LSTs reaching the beaches after the morning of D plus 1 until D plus 4. In other words, for three days, 
the, the GIs would be stranded on the beach without reinforcement, resupply, ammunition, food supplies, or, God forbid, evacuation, should that be necessary. That's clearly unacceptable. And so D-Day was postponed. Originally scheduled for May 1st, 1944, it was rescheduled for the first week of June 1944, and as many of you know, delayed one more day because of the weather. And even then, even with that extra month of LST production, it was a very near-run thing. Churchill saw where the bottleneck was. Everything turned on the landing craft, he wrote, which held our strategy in a tight ligature. And yet, that week, that same week that Allied soldiers stormed ashore in Normandy, 11,000 miles away in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, an American invasion force nearly as large as the D-Day Armada, one that included 84 LSTs, was headed for the island of Saipan in the Marianas. The very fact that the Allies could mount two enormous invasion armadas on opposite sides of the world at the same time shows first how the American industrial dynamo had changed the calculus of battle between from 1942 to 1944, but also demonstrates rather dramatically how the naval war was, in fact, a global confrontation. Ike would have salivated over those 84 extra LSTs. But instead of Germany first, instead of fighting one opponent at a time, the Allies by 1944 had become so strong they could fight in the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Mediterranean, and the Arctic, and the Indian Ocean, all at the same time. In short, though I guess it's probably already too late for that, the Second World War was a global war, one that involved a dozen national navies, contested the oceans of the world and six oceans, every ocean, in fact, except Antarctica, ships all over the place. And while fully acknowledging that all wars, including this one, are in the end won by boots on the ground, in constructing this book, I gained an enormous appreciation for how much the course of the war was charted and steered by maritime events. Now, you may notice that I have not talked about the Bismarck, Midway, Philippine Sea, Leyte Gulf, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, a lot of the big headline-grabbing battles of the war. And I'm happy to do that if you're interested during the question-and-answer period, which begins right now. So, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm just going to go through these cards and see what we've got. I am here tonight with my father who promptly served in the, in the Pacific Theater during World War II. We've been discussing the collisions between U.S. Navy ships, commercial vessels, in recent years, resulting in deaths and extensive damage. What is causing these collisions? This did not happen in World War II. <laughs> Actually, it happened all the time in World War II. Service at sea is a dangerous undertaking. There's been a lot of talk about what happened with uh, those two ships in particular, Fitzgerald and McCain in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, The official explanation is that uh, 
the uh, ships had been underway for long periods of time and under stress, uh, but at the same time, there uh, had been uh, acknowledgments by the officer of the deck in one case that uh, she, and it was a she in this case, uh, simply took her eye off the ball. Uh, we're operating at sea is dangerous. It's a difficult thing to do. Operating in the crowded sea channels of the Western Pacific is particularly dangerous. And while making absolutely no excuse for collisions at sea, particularly two that happen so close to one another chronologically, uh, it's embarrassing. Uh, And we're working on it. Uh, There was a stand-down of the Pacific Fleet. Admiral Swift ordered an immediate stand-down, extra training. Uh, Surface Warfare Officer School at Newport, where I currently live and work, uh, has been... uh, uh, bringing new classes in. So uh, I guess the best thing I can say is we're working on it. Why was the oil on the Ohio not exploded? Yeah, a lot of people ask that. I mean, if you hit a tanker, doesn't, doesn't all the oil ignite and blow up? Not necessarily. Um, seldom, in fact, did a lot of oil tankers were carrying uh, crude oil, which is not particularly inflammable. When the tankers were sunk, in the, Med- in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean, in the North Pacific, occasionally they would ignite, and there's dramatic footage, some of it in color, showing these vessels of flames uh, climbing uh, two, three, four hundred feet into the sky. But most oil is relatively stable uh, in transit and, and does not explode on contact. Thank goodness for the crew of the Ohio. Do you agree with the following? I'm almost afraid to read it. <laughs> the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was as much of a surprise to Hitler as the United States. That is absolutely true. Uh, One of the interesting things about the two alliances that fought one another in this conflict is that the Anglo-American partnership was a genuine alliance. They met regularly. They talked about what to do. They cooperated in their landings. The landings in North Africa, in Sicily, in Italy, in Normandy were all joint and combined operations with American, British, and Canadian forces participating in all of those operations. Uh, The Russians, somewhat less so. Uh, The Anglo-Americans let the Russians know what they were planning, what they were hoping. Stalin almost never said anything. Stalin essentially was hanging on. Um, But he did agree to launch an offensive of his own simultaneous with the landings in Normandy so that Germany would suffer from a pincers movement. Now, contrast that relationship with the Axis alliance. They signed the so-called Pact of Steel, right? But what the Pact of Steel said was, we will let each other know what we're doing, maybe. Because Mussolini invaded Greece without telling Hitler, and Hitler had to go down and pull his chestnuts out of the fire, not for the first or last time. Japan attacked the United States without telling Hitler they were going to do it. Germany invaded the Soviet Union without telling either Italy or Japan. So these three nations were on the same side, but they did not cooperate. There was no joint planning. And and that is one explanation. I don't think it's the most prominent explanation, but it is certainly one explanation of why the Allies were able to win this war. We did pull on the same rope. They just happened to be on the same side. During the Battle of Midway, was it a mistake by Nimitz to allocate any resources to the defense of the Aleutians? I don't think so. Uh, First of all, Uh, Many of you know, and obviously the author of this question knows, that the Japanese did target uh, Atu and Kiska Islands in the Aleutians and bombed uh, uh, Dutch Harbor as well. Um, 
Many have assumed that was intended to be a feint. Look, we're going after the Aleutians. Don't look at Midway down here. Look at this. In fact, it was a quite separate operation by the Japanese, part of their plan to erect a defensive barrier in the Pacific that would make it more costly for the United States to regain their lost ground. Um, But Nimitz' great challenge was, should I even pick up the gauntlet that the Japanese have thrown? Once we knew once we believed that the Japanese were attacking Midway, you know, there's a lot of talk that we were reading their mail, we'd broken their code, we knew they were coming, and that's mostly true, but we didn't know it in any precise detail. We just had an understanding. And so for Nimitz to decide they're coming with four carriers to attack a tiny little island, I've only got three, and one of them is crippled, and I have no battleships, and they have several. This is a dicey situation. And remember, the overall strategy is supposedly Germany first. Maybe the smart thing to do here is to stay out of this. Send my carriers off to the east, out of harm's way. Let them have Midway Island, right? It's not that important to us. We can take it back when those new ships that are being built now, are available to me, then I can go get it. It'll be a burden on the Japanese. They'll have to supply it over a 4,000-mile supply line. Good luck. But instead, Nimitz said, well, no, wait a minute. I've got three carriers, but I've also got the island of Midway. That's got an airfield. That's four. They have four. I know about their plans. They don't know that I know. I'm going to take them on. So he had to husband pretty much whatever he had to confront that operation, And doing so was a bold stroke. So to pull forces away from that and go up there and do something about the Aleutians, in my opinion, uh, he did exactly what he ought to have done. Nimitz is one of my heroes in this war. I think he made a few questionable decisions, but not many, and I don't think that was one of them. Did the confusion between who had ultimate authority between the Navy and the Army repeat itself after the Aleutians debacle between Army-Navy Theobald and Army-General Butler. Yeah, there's a lot of Army-Navy uh, jawing and, and so forth, some of it more serious than others. Um, Midway uh, is an example of it. You know, the Army planes that flew out from Midway's airfield, the high-flying B-17s that dropped bombs from 20,000 feet on the Japanese ships. And Of course, from 20,000 feet, when things explode down there, it looks pretty impressive. So they, they got back first, talked to the reporter, and said, we sank four Jap carriers. And that's what the headline said back in the United States. Army sinks Jap Navy. I want to tell you, that led to a lot of bar fights <laughs> over the ensuing several months because all of those ships were sunk by the U.S. Navy operating from carriers. Not a single bomb from a land-based airplane touched a Japanese ship at the Battle of Midway. So there was that argument. In addition, about the Aleutians, to which this refers specifically, uh, the Army wanted to use its, its uh, planes to defend the base. The Navy said, well, you know, you've got to provide cover for our ships. And that's an argument that went on not only in the Pacific, it went on in the Atlantic between the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy about where bomber resources should be allocated. The Royal Air Force, and for that matter, the U.S. Army Air Force, U.S. Army Air Corps, later U.S. Army Air Force, now the U.S. Air Force, wanted to use their bombers to bomb German cities, strategic bombing. They didn't want to waste them doing reconnaissance work for the convoys. Probably would have been a good idea to do that, but the powers that be and where the powers lie 
Churchill backed strategic bombing, and so that's where it went. So, so this argument between the Army and the Navy over the use of aircraft in the Aleutians campaign mirrored a much broader strategic argument between how to use uh, land-based aircraft, tactically or strategically. It still goes on, by the way. It still goes on today. When the Japanese invasion force left Hiro- uh, Hiroshima Bay, actually it wasn't Hiroshima Bay, but that's okay, uh, for Pearl Harbor, did they know where the carriers were? If not, when was the last time they knew where the carriers were? The, the Japanese, uh, in attacking Pearl Harbor, the planner of this was a guy named Yamamoto Isaroko, who was skeptical to begin with about war with the United States. He had had two tours of duty in the United States. He had visited the Henry Ford assembly line plant and said, oh my God, we can't fight these people. But aware that the wind was blowing in a different direction. He said, okay, it's clear we're going to do this. If we do, the only chance we have to survive it is to take out their fleet on the first day. And in particular, he wanted to get the American carriers because he knew better than many of his peers how important carriers were going to be in the Pacific War. But the carriers weren't there. And no, he didn't know where they were at any given time. Uh, They were operating, the Japanese were operating under strict radio silence. Uh, The Americans actually had gotten a war warning from Washington. Our friend Betty Stark wrote a war warning on the 27th of November out to all Pacific commanders saying, this is to be considered a war warning. Hostilities may break out at any minute. All Pacific commanders are dutifully warned to put yourselves in a defensive position and so on and so on. Well, husband Kimmel, who was commander of the fleet in Pearl Harbor at the time, who took the fall, for Pearl Harbor says, oh my gosh, you know, we're probably okay here, 4,000 miles away, but you know what's precarious is Midway Island and Wake Island, I need to reinforce them with airplanes. So he took his two carriers, sent one to Midway and one to Wake with reinforcement squadrons, and that's where they were on the 7th of December when the Japanese attacked. Now, if you believe in Providence, maybe that's one of the things behind the failure of the Japanese to get the American carriers on December 7th, 1941. They got the battleship fleet. But they didn't get the carriers, and that turned out to be far more important than the battleships that they got. You said, <laughs> you said when the Navy decided to go after Germany, they reversed a 20-year strategy. What was that strategy? The strategy that was abandoned was known as Plan Orange. Uh, the Navy then, and now too, develops contingency plans. What are we going to do if? What do we have ready just in case? And they were, in the 1920s and 30s, they were all categorized by color. There was a plan red, in case we went to war with Britain, not likely. A plan green, in case we fought Mexico, again. There was a plan purple for the invasion of Iceland. Uh, But the one everybody thought was most likely, the the one they took seriously was plan orange. The first uh, piece of it was laid down in 1911. So that's how long the Navy had been thinking about Here's what we're going to do if we go to war with Japan. We're going to mobilize the fleet in Pearl Harbor. We're going to have the army in the Philippines hole up in the Bataan Peninsula. We're going to bring the Navy across the ocean, getting a couple of advanced bases as we go, and we're going to fight a climactic battle in the Philippine Sea, and we'll win. And that's how we're going to win the war. Now, that sounds very simplistic, and it is the way I described it, but the Navy labored over this. And where I work now at the Naval War College in Newport, one of the older buildings, no longer used for this purpose, has a checkerboard, black and white checkerboard floor where officers with little wooden ship models, that's supposed to be 1,000 yards per square, would, would fight out the prospective battle against the Japanese in the Second World War. 
That battle, of course, never took place because carriers, not battleships, became the new capital ship of the war. But it was Plan Orange was the plan that the Navy abandoned, effectively, when they turned to Plan Dog and the Germany First strategy. How are we doing on time here? Um, one last question. The premier naval weapon in World War II is the aircraft carrier. Is this weapon obsolete today? The following remarks do not represent the opinion of the United States Navy, the Department of Defense, or the Naval War College. I don't think they're obsolete today, but it's an awful lot of eggs to put in one basket. Um, it makes a dramatic diplomatic statement. When you send a carrier somewhere, and a carrier can never go alone, remember. It's got to go with at least two missile-firing cruisers and four probably frigates or destroyers, a tanker to keep the frigates and destroyers full of gas. Carrier, of course, doesn't need gas because it's nuclear. But that asset package is enormous and with its embarked air wing carries more effective offensive firepower in that one task force than the entire Navy of any other country on Earth. And we have 10 of them. So we're okay. Um, sleep well tonight. Um, but it, it is a question, uh, I think, of, of how you spread your assets. Uh, the new CNO, uh, Admiral Richardson, has uh, taken to task the idea that we're going to try to build a 385-ship Navy. But 385 is a number. Uh, if you build one aircraft carrier, that's probably 30 or 40 destroyer escorts you're not building. Um, so how that number is distributed, it seems to me if you've got 10 of these aircraft carrier battle groups, you've got pretty poten- big potential firepower. So obsolete is a word I'm, I'm reluctant to use, but I do think it's time to reconsider uh, whether the financial investment in a carrier, a nuclear-powered carrier battle group for the next generation is the best way to spend taxpayers' money. And I'll end with that. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.